Right. Does transdisciplinary applied behavioral science. Okay, I can do this. Okay. <laughs> I can do this. I can do this. I am here with Amy Alcon. Amy does transdisciplinary applied behavioral science. Amy synthesizes research findings from across neuroscience, social psychology, evolutionary. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh I, my God, I'm I was gonna, doing so well. Sorry. No, no, I'm going to improve this for you. Um, okay, I'm sorry. I'm here with Amy Alcon. Amy does what she calls applied behavioral science, translating scientific research into highly practical advice. Basically, she synthesizes research findings from across neuroscience, social, social psychology, evolutionary psychology, clinical psychology, and then translates those findings into understandable language and then transforms them into practical advice. She writes the award-winning science help column the science advice goddess syndicated to newspapers across the united states and canada amy's latest book which i had the pleasure of reading after she sent it to me thank thankfully thank you amy and the book is called unfuckology a field guide to living with guts and confidence and i think that's a great title title unfuckology Thank you. Thank you. So thank you for being on, Amy. And I'm kind of worried about us talk, uh, speaking together <laughs> because I'm already a person who suffers really bad attention deficit disorder. And watching your interviews, I could, you, you definitely do as well. And so us together is going to be a mess, but I can't wait for that mess. Wait, I do what well or I do something poorly? Um, no, it's, I don't know if it's poorly or not because people with a, I kind of like talking with people who have attention deficit because <laughs> the conversation just goes anywhere. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't consider it a disorder. I think of it as a feature with some costs, which is basically that, you know, I should look for my keys in the freezer. Um, but my mind right. bounces around. And so it makes these kind of very interesting and fun connections and it's very entertaining. Um, except if you need to really focus on a paragraph and then Adderall is very helpful. Um, so I first want to ask you about the book on Fagology. The title itself, it wasn't exactly explained in the book. Did you mean that you will get unfucked? <laughs> that sounds <laughs> like, bad. Like a way of unfucking yourself, like you're kind of ruined or... Now, if you're fucked, then you're ruined. And unfucked, actually, you just reminded me, um, Albert Ellis, who founded Cognitive Behavioral Therapy along with um, Aaron Beck at the time, he used to say, if you'd say, fuck you, he'd say, no, unfuck you. Fucking's a good thing. <laughs> and, and I hope we're allowed to say fuck on this podcast because yeah, we, we can just say both it said lot. it about 55 times. Yeah. Okay. So, no, this is the science of unfucking yourself. You have this self that you came in with, you know, the self that's maybe fearful and you stand back from things and you don't seize opportunity because you're afraid and it's unfucking those feelings. So you can go out and um, have the most opportunity in dating, in your job, with your friendships. So you're not living as this sort of timid person who hides behind furniture anymore. 
and you use a lot of science to to get to the meat of this and try to figure out what is the best ways and you i mean to, let's start at the beginning of your book you talk about yourself and you expose yourself and make yourself very vulnerable to the reader talking about very heartbreaking kind of situations and how you felt like a loser and how you didn't have friends and how you would try so hard. And then over time, how you improved over that. But I, I, at times when I was reading that, I was like, wow, she's really laying herself out there. Was that a hard thing to do? Um, actually, um, not really, because I think that, um, being honest, if you're not honest as an author, you're boring and they're the, the guts of your life. I mean, we all have these things that happen to us that are humiliating and horrible. And those are the things that connect us with other people. And I also thought it was important to show exactly how far I'd come because few people have a childhood as crappy and horrible and loserish and friendless as mine. I had no friends till I was 15. Then I went to New York, became a suck up. Um, I helped every colleague of mine move. They all had a lot of money and stuff. I was sort of a junior colleague and then it came time for me to move and everyone was like, Oh, um, I'm in bed with a hangnail or, um, I'm really, I have an emergency party. I have to go to out in the Hamptons. This is New York. That's the she, she area. Anyway, so I was just sort of, you know, I had to move myself with this cart down cobblestones and the wheel fell off and it rained on my computer and I started to cry and I realized I had only one real friend and I had to change that. And so what I did, it turned out to be actually based in good science, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, I was just desperate. And so what I ended up doing was acting like my confident boss who could say disagreeable things and people would still treat her well and like her and respect her. And so when I would be in some dicey situation, I would put on her, you know, her persona and be sort of like, um, excuse me. Um, I believe you gave me the wrong change. And now you can hear how I totally changed. I was sort of sitting like her and stuff and I'm not a very good actress, but we have a sort of package idea of who another person is. And that gave me training wheels. And I'll explain why, um, that, that I can explain that later as we get into that stuff, but, um, why it's important to do that to basically what I say is impersonate your way to the real you, as opposed to this idea of fake it till you make it and stand up straight and then you'll come off confident, which actually you won't because you'll be remembering to stand up straight and speak from your diaphragm and not dig your nails and this will give you what's called cognitive overload, where your your mind just craps out. You forget the thing you're going to pitch to the guy, and everything falls apart. Whereas if you're doing this, being another person, you're not defrauding people because you're not trying to you're not trying to do that. You're not trying to rob them of their bank account, presumably, but you're just trying to act at your best and to see what it's like to be one of these other people. And this helps you ultimately understand that your fears are stupid. That you, you should just behave that way as you, which you eventually do. So I eventually shed my little Kathy persona. That was my boss. And I would go do this as me. And now I'm actually kind of badass. If you're in front of my house at 12 in the morning and you're boom, boom, booming your radio, we're really close to the street here in Venice where I live. I will lean over the fence with this night watchman flashlight and flash into your car as you're getting a blowjob. I don't care that you're getting a blowjob, but do it damn quietly or I'm going to, I'm going to expose you and I'll get a picture if I can. So this is a very different person than the little squeaky, squeaky mouse who is afraid to ever speak up or say no or have a personality or have an opinion. Yeah, you, that was you, the old you spoke a lot about how the interaction between psychology and the body and how there it, there used to be this uh, belief that there was 
almost no connection between the 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 meat body right and then our brain but actually the way we move our bodies the way we we use our bodies actually does our, affect our psychology it's so amazing this is the crux of the book and it's called I, I translate everything but this is called embodied cognition and the way i describe it is that the mind is bigger than the brain mm-hmm. so um, a great example of of um, a sort of quote that illustrates this is from F. Scott Fitzgerald, the novelist who wrote The Great Gatsby, and he said, action is character. So this means that what a person does defines who they are, and this actually, the science support this. Action actually becomes character if you look at embodied cognition. So the body, it's often a part of cognition, so thinking, and that's essential to transforming because basically you act like the person you want to be over and over and over. And by doing this, you embed the new behaviors and the emotions that go with into your brain. So these become your default reactions, your default behaviors. Instead of the squeak, squeak, I'm a mouse, you become badass. Although I will say I admit in the book, cause I'm just very open about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, cause who wants to read people who are all like, oh, I'm fabulous. You know, that's boring. Um, so I say, look, I'm about now after growing up as a total loser with no friends and being really kind of emotionally scarred by that. So I'm like 80, 20, 80% of me is like, I'm badass and confident. I rule the world. And 20% is hate me. I suck. But the 80% part talks to the 20% part and says, don't be an asshole. Shut up. You know, better than this. Go out there, go talk to that guy, make that phone call. Come on. And actually, it helps to use profanity. This is from Ethan. Not He didn't do the profanity part. Ethan Cross found, um, he's a researcher, I think, at U of M or Princeton, who found that talking to yourself in third person, so this is part of the metaphor stuff of the book, you have distance when when a friend talks to you. A friend says, Amy, don't be an asshole. You know, usually just think like, oh, I shouldn't do that. But if you talk to yourself in that third person, it gives you some kind of psychological distance that helps you calm down. It seems motivating. And actually, this thing of profanity, I know it seems juvenile. I have fucking every book titled. The last one was Good Manners for Nice People Sometimes Say Fuck. <laughs> so that's just like, and then my friends love an intervention if I put it in the next one. But um, using profanity also seems to strengthen um, what you're saying. Um, as a motivating, as a motivating force. So to tell yourself, don't be an asshole. That's not just vulgar. It's actually scientifically shown to be helpful. Besides all the science you talk about in the book, I mean, I really, I really like the informal language you use in the book, your use of curse words. And then there are some moments where you just had me laughing so bad, where I think, I think you use this actually, this joke twice, but you refer to like, she had an ass so big that it has its own delegate at the UN. (laughs) Oh, thanks. That oh, was, did I use that, that twice? A, I think you used it twice. I think you used it for both boobs and a butt. <laughs> so, but, but the joke was so great. God. I didn't mind. It was twice in there. I think. I, I, oh, my God. You're right. I'm, I'm looking at my PDF. Holy shit. You're right. Um, for instance, going to the mind. gym. Shit. You know, this is amazing because I have the best copy editor ever in the universe. And um, um, yeah, going to the gym before your ass becomes eligible to send a delegate to the UN. Oh, my God. And here. Oh, holy shit. Bo- you're right about the boobs. If it had shit. been a bad joke, you would you you should be worried. But it, since it's a great joke. Oh, it's, good. It's yeah. actually fine. You know what? I probably replaced something. Shit. I can't believe that. I, laughed, I have a joke file. I laughed equally hard both times I got to those points because they're separate enough. Because if they had yeah. been like back to back, like in the same chapter, it would have been bad. But I, 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 that was the first time it comes up. If you see on your PDF, it comes out at the beginning. And then the other one is really towards the end. <laughs> That's 
So it's great that it, right. it was revisited. So That's don't worry about hilarious. it. Don't I love that you got that See, I love you though, because you're a close reader. Those people who skip things. See, I write for, I've been writing my advice column, The Science Advice Goddess, for over 20 years now. And so what I know is that people are lazy readers. And so I write for the lazy readers. And so I know that I better put that in there, you know, twice or explain that a little better because people didn't read that in the question or something like that. And so this is hilarious. I, I have a joke file too. What, hap- what probably happened was like, oh, I need something about like fat ass. Um, but by the way, <laughs> that is a thing you get in trouble for now. Um, I actually got fired from a paper for making a, a joke about that um, in the past. So I'm very careful. Wait, about, you get fired for like what? The, for making a joke? Yeah, because if you make jokes about people being overweight, which I mean, hi, I make jokes about everything about myself. Um, in my column, I had this thing about ADD and how my boyfriend says, um, what does he say? Shoot, I'm going to forget this. Um, oh, do I have your divided attention, which I think is so funny. <laughs> um, you know, all these things. And so why, you know, people write me and they're, they're irate that I joked about like something or other. And, um, and it's like, well, okay, I joke about all these people every week and you never wrote me before. And you were never concerned about my jokes about any other person. And, um, I find it dehumanizing to not joke about people. John Callahan, who is a quadriplegic cartoonist, there's just a movie out about his life. My friend Debbie Levin was his manager. So I got to know him really well. And, um, he, he basically, he was quadriplegic. He'd drive around Portland on this motorized wheelchair and say, see my shoes. Oh, she might see my new shoes. I bet they're comfortable and make all these quadriplegic jokes. And his idea was that if you leave people, if they're too precious to joke about, they're not quite human. And so that it's actually a kind thing to do to joke about quads, as John called them, just like you joke about everybody else. And so that's the thing of like, oh, can I make, you know, I make jokes about myself and how lame I am. And I just told you like all my like loserish things and how I had a, a survey based on a hotel survey to find out why guys wouldn't have sex with me. I gave it out at a cafe. I mean, if I tell you all those horrible things that I did that are so humiliating, can I like throw in an ass joke? Come on. But like that kind of joke, like that joke about the, like she, it has its own delicate at the UN that w- might get you fired. That joke. Um, I don't, it depends. See, it's like this internet mob thing that starts, right. but I try to diffuse it. And I had a joke about a woman, um, trying to, let me see if I can find it. Cause I'm in my column file. Um, if I can find but I, this, I understand um, what you mean. I, I think, well, also I think like in the United States right now, the, the PC culture is so out of control. I don't think people can breathe. I don't, I think, you know, people are, are so like, on their tip tiptoes, you know, like moving around both the both the whole culture of flirting and interacting between the sexes and saying things about society or politics. It seems like where nobody's really free and is extremely nervous to say anything while your book oh, is very, right. you know, out there and, and pushing the limits. And I, I, I didn't find anything like wrong with it, but I, I like the informal language to it. I, I like that. Oh, you thanks. That it, I'm reading because that's the great thing about your book that, it has a ton of science in there, but it doesn't bore you because suddenly you throw in between everything, you know, some, some curse words, some jokes, some, you know, some some story about yourself that that's, you know, silly or ironic or, you know, putting yourself down in that jokish way. But it's I think that's what makes it better. It's, you know, comedy is about self-deprecation at the end of the day. most I think that the funniest comedy is, you know, unless you seem like, oh, I really suck and it's just not funny. But um, 
I, to me, effective science writing is to make it clear and understandable and fun to read because if it's not, um, people aren't going to get the science. You have to make it that. And um, writing funny, the, the truth is Hitchens was right. Most women are not funny. It's not adaptive for women to be funny. This is Jeff Miller's mating model. I don't, this isn't something I talk about in the book, mating mind model. And um, where for for a man, um, being spontaneously funny, not telling jokes like you memorize them, that's like the women despise that um, basically. But if you can be spontaneously funny in the moment, say something appropriate and funny in the moment, that's a sign of high intelligence. And so the thing is, Guys, you know, a guy will date the barista, a woman won't, because we have sex differences in what we prioritize in relationships. So more and more men want women who are their, excuse me, their intellectual equals and have the same college education and everything. But we have Stone Age minds, to quote Lita Cosmetis and John Tooby. We are living in a time with iPhones and drones, and pretty soon I'll have my flying car that I've wanted my whole life. Um, but we have these minds that are adapted for hunter-gatherer life st- lifestyles when we lived in these small bands running around loincloths spearing bison. And um, that's the problem, you know, that we are we are living with those minds. Wait, I was going to say, was it sex differences? I, I get lost on my tangents. Um, um, so what was I on? Oh, the, okay. So women. So Men are, men prioritize women's looks as far as, you know, that's the men have highly visual sexuality. So how smart you are, you know, that funny signals, you know, this isn't really important for women. And so the woman who edits me, Amy Dresner, who wrote My Fair Junkie, she was a former professional comedian. She's really funny. And she and I are really funny together. We we send dirty jokes over Skype like all day when we work. Um, jokes that I can't put in my column because I would be chased by people with flaming pitchforks. But um, um, it's, it's um, really nice to be around those people. It's sort of like the... I don't know, it's like a secret society where you can actually say funny things and people won't be like, oh, my God, I'm going to report you to the campus police. But, you you know, you mentioned there about <clears throat> how we evolved to be certain ways. So it's there's a lot of now debate about like nature versus nurture, did, you know, evolutionary psychology. Did we evolve to have this, uh, you know, this attitude, this way of being between the sexes or or whatever? And I noticed now that and it's very odd because the the left the liberal left in like let's say in the west in the united states for example i thought were the people who were more leaning towards that things uh, things are more nature than we thought and this is this was very much expressed when trying to push for civil rights for gay people trans people etc that the whole argument was no they're born this way i mean lady gaga made a song you know born this way and now it seems like the left is trying to disconnect everything from nature and move it to nurture. No, it's all a social social construct. It is just society pushing us to be this way. And I think there's a combination of the two. And I think maybe the the people who are conservative a lot of times are now kind of taking, I don't know if they're doing it because now the, the left is taking this like extreme pro-nurture kind of attitude towards things. But I noticed there's almost too much focus on the right wing as well to say everything is kind of evolutionary psychology. And I don't think that's also accurate in a lot of ways. So for example, even when it comes to 
sexual expression. I mean, I've lived in many societies. I've lived in East Asia, Korea, Japan. I've lived in Latin America and Chile and other countries and the United States. And I mean, between Latin America and East Asia, I mean, the sexual repression between Latinos and East Asians is gigantic. And I can see there that it's that's not like just they we evolve differently. That's I think mostly in that case. The distinction between the two of us, how we express our sexuality and that sexuality being nature, but how much we express it, how openly we express it, that has a lot to do with cultural society. But I think right. it's, there's a mix there. And I see that everybody's getting really extreme to what it is. And in your book, I think you you you, you take certain things that uh, that you, and you, you as you included um when I was introducing you that you take neuroscience, you take social psychology, evolutionary psychology and clinical psychology. So it's just one aspect of what you do. You, you see across the board and then you package it into a way for people to make it practical and actually use it in their life. Not to say that's interesting. Well, I just want to comment on the culture, the cultural thing. There is cultural evolution. That's part of biological evolution. So the expression, there are differences in cultures, in the way people behave. Um, and so, but that's not a sign that, oh, ab psych is crap. And I would say, just to talk about the thing that you're saying with the left, it's mostly the left saying, oh no, everything's socialized into us and, you know, men and women are the same. There's somebody who wrote some and terrible article saying- that used to be that way. What happened, Amy? And women's, oh, it's so awful. It it's just, like it's so unhelpful. It's like the lie that looks don't matter. Well, they're not all that matters, but they matter a great deal, especially if you're a woman who wants to date straight men. You know, hey, but here's um, another question. Why shouldn't it matter? I mean, the like the way you look, it's not people just take that you somebody judges you by the way you look, you're automatically com uh, committing a sin. Like it's bad to judge people by the way they look, by the way they dress, by the way they, they have their hair, you know, how healthy they look, how fit they are. I mean, there are good reasons to judge people by the way they look. It, there's there's good reasons to judge people like if they have healthy skin, if they're fit, if they're not overweight. I mean, there's good reasons for, you know, evolutionary wise that we make this judgment you know, because a person is healthier. And also, like, aside from the, the health part, which maybe lean towards m more the evolutionary part, but it's also, you know, maybe you just want to, you judge somebody because they look put together by the way they dress, the way they take care of their hair. It's, we also want somebody who's organized, right? And maybe the, the, it's a good match for us versus somebody who's just a slob. There, I mean, there's all kind of re good reasons to judge people by the way they look. Right. And actually, evolutionary psychology... What I look at is what would have been the function of this in an evolutionary environment? Because we have this Stone Age operating system that we are on using even today. And there is, we do continue to evolve. Um, but so, for example, um, the fact that some people have lactose tolerance after they are babies that's an example of evolution. People who grew up um, or whose ancestors came from areas where there was dairying, that's the thinking. Um, but complex cognitive adaptations of the sort that drive mating and other things, they actually don't change very quickly. Um, they, they take, I think it's hundreds or hundreds of thousands of generations. And, and also we're not, um, we're not uh, all, we're, we're transient people now. We have medical care. There are all sorts of reasons why I think evolution isn't working quite like it used to um, in terms of um, any sort of change. And you can't, it's not like, oh, look, Gloria Steinem two decades ago. Okay, cool. 
you know, now I'm going to ask men out. Well, that doesn't work. You know, if you're a straight woman, I mean, sometimes it does, but it's a risky strategy because men evolve to be the chasier sex, as I say it, and women the choosier sex because a woman can get pregnant from a single sex act and then have a kid to drag around and feed. And a guy can be like, okay, you know, what did he invest a teaspoonful of sperm and he's on his way? You know, maybe he'll stick around, maybe he won't. So women evolved to look for men who are willing and able to invest in their furry little children back then. And, you know, same thing now because we have these stone age minds. And so that's what I look, that's what I look for. Whatever would have helped our, you know, distant ancestors survive and mate, um, you know, th- that's the stuff I, I hold up social science research and say, well, why would this have had made functional sense? You know, an example is, um, the idea of self-esteem that it's, you know, I like me that that's been the idea from social science for a long time. The Rosenberg self-esteem scale, blah, blah, blah. That makes little functional sense. Um, you know, how would it have helped you in an evolutionary environment to like yourself? Here you are. Say that you're the example I think I give in the book is, um, that you're chipping at a tree to get to the stake inside, you know, keep chip, cheap, you keep chipping, no stake, still no stake, still no stake. And so, okay. What happens is like, if you really like yourself, how does that help you? What helps you is to actually, um, have to, to feel shitty about the, how you're not getting any stakes. So you stop doing it. And so (laughs) you stop chipping, um, because otherwise you'll just die chipping at that tree. So our emotions are functional. They're motivational tools. They evolve to motivate us to take our hand off the hot stove, um, to kiss the girl, you know, to chase the girl. If you're a guy, you know, to do all this stuff. Sorry, there's an ant on me. (laughs) This is Venice. You have like an army. They walk through your house in the morning and you're like, ah, when you wake up, that's what's happened today. So there's still vestiges after I got them with the dust buster. Yes, I'm a mass murderer of ants. Um, so anyway, this is this is what I look at. It's very, very important. I think social science is largely um, empty when they don't look at things um, through an evolutionary lens and say, why would this have made sense in an evolutionary environment? And so just to give you one example, what you're talking about with the differences, Dan Snicer did amazing work that I reference on shame, what shame really is. And he looked at cultures, three different cultures. This is really important. You know, a lot of researchers, they just study like, oh, let's see, I have a psych class. We'll give them all class credit if they answer this quick survey. (laughs) It's like, okay, guys, kind of walk out the door, okay? I understand why they don't. It's expensive and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, so he studied India, Israel, and America and looked at shame, you know, the stuff that we do that other people will devalue us for. That's what he figured out shame is. This Brene Brown stuff of like, I forget what she says shame is. None of this stuff holds up about all these people who think, what is it like shame is, um, shame is here. I can look it up here because I know it's like Helen. It's in your book. I I remember. Yeah, it's it's Helen Helen Block Lewis. Um, she, um, she said she was the one, everyone got this from her. People are just very credulous in social psychology. A lot of them not, I mean, I respect a lot of social psychologists, but they, somebody comes up with an idea and then people just believe it forever. And it's in the social psych textbooks. So her idea, um, shame versus guilt, um, she said that shame involves a negative evaluation of the self where, where guilt stems from a negative evaluation of an action a person's taking. This is completely dumb, has no functional sense. Um, you know, why would the feeling that we suck, you know, and don't deserve to take up space in the planet, help us survive and mate and, you know, get better cuts of bison. It it just doesn't, you know? And so, um, like self-esteem, which I, I debunk the ideas on that, 
Shame seems to basically be a reputation manage- management tool. Um, this is Dan Snyder's work. Shame's an emotion program. It's a defensive system that o- evolved to help us not be devalued by others in our social world. Because if you were in this evolutionary environment, if people thought you were kind of a freeloader or shitty in some way, you could have been kicked out of this band of you know 25 to 50 people to go it alone at a time when there were no Motel 6s or 7-Elevens. So you're basically screwed. You probably die. So you needed to be liked, to have a good reputation. And so what Snyzer says is that shame, the feeling of shame is information driven. So it's brought on by the notion that others could find out about our bad behavior, that we were unfair and downgrade us because of it. So it's sort of like an inner crisis PR specialist. So it's, it's saying like, keep those, those bad facts about yourself from getting out or, you know, hide them, you know, or minimize the damage. And so when they studied this, they looked at these different cultures. So in India, I forget, maybe it's like the left hand. If you eat with the left hand, that's the poo hand. So, and people are, or if you pass the food, then they're like, oh my God, that's horrible. So we don't have that same idea here. However, we, like people in India, think you're really yicky and horrible if you get poo on the bathroom floor. Sorry, that's so gross. But, and you leave it there. We're disgusted by you. And, and then this brings on, this is the sort of thing, if we know that we are doing that, oh my God, I like did this toilet behavior or whatever, that makes us feel shitty because we are worried that other people will find out about our bad behavior and devalue us. So we're avoiding being devalued. That's what shame involves, avoiding being devalued by others. And then guilt, personizer, is it comes out of a feeling that we have shortchanged somebody we value. So it's relationship-driven. Shame is image-oriented. You don't want to be seen as some scumbag. And so that either motivates you to avoid acting like a scumbag or to hide your scumbaggery. And then guilt is relationship-driven. So you don't want to be a scumbag to somebody you care about. So you want to act in their best interests, even when you could get away with being a scumbag to them. Yeah. And so like that's the, the beginning of where a, a person ha- has certain feelings, negative feelings towards themselves. And then you, you talk like we were talking before about the connection between the body and the mind. And to me, while I was reading your book, I hadn't st- I haven't studied really uh, psychology on, on any field, but what what made me think back to myself and my upbringing was I was uh, put into Taekwondo classes when I was really young and I wasn't particularly, you know, in, in high school or junior high. I don't know, the, the smartest kid in the class, the, the you know, um, coolest kid in the class, the most handsome kid in the class. But doing martial arts and there's so many aspects about it, about that, you when you know, um, classical Taekwondo, you, you, you do these forms where you have to the teacher would make you stand up straight and, you know, you have to use your body a certain way. And we would hit boards. And at first, when I was little, we'd hit the board and I'd be scared and I'd overcome that. And so. And also we would spar and I would be, you know, fighting with a guy who's twice my size. So it that was a good outlet for me to gain confidence. And so many of the things reminded me of that, the, the connection between how I was using my body, how I would conduct my body because I had more control of it thanks to doing this sport and how that changed my attitude towards everyone else. You know, if you know, I can ever overcome this if I have a guy twice my size kicking me and punching me, I don't feel as nervous when I, when I approach a stranger later or, or, or such things. And also just the, 
the connection between I have my my mind and my body, I would notice change my psychology when I did everything else. And I mean, you don't mention martial arts specifically, but it could be anything, really. That's that's I think that's your whole point, right? Is that God, you have to find you, that. I wish I had. I want to say that's such a great example. This is such a great thing to do. So if you're a timid person, to do these kinds of things that make you feel strong and powerful. I mean, this is and with the body, that's really yeah. important. And so a big point of the book is that the way we have seen um, how to change in the past that you go and you wind at a therapist every week. This is good if you are a therapist and you need to buy an island, but it doesn't help us change because action is the most efficient way to change. And it actually brings along the brain with, with the action. We, there's, um, a big part of the book. Um, I use the latest, I reference the latest stuff on what's called exposure therapy, which is basically being exposed to the stuff you're afraid of. So you see that your fears are stupid and therapists, many of them, because I, I get letters from across the country every week from total strangers. Therapists are using the old Kozak and FOA model of exposure therapy, where Fear is a thing to be avoided and to, got, have, to get rid of, and this is a mistake. The latest, best stuff on this is from a woman named Michelle Kraske at, at UCLA. I love her because she has, she does these um, experiments where, oh, you're claustrophobic. Okay, you show up at three. We're going to lock you in a closet. If you're afraid of spiders, they have like spiders they put on you. Uh, I, I think you get to look at them in an aquarium first, but you do all this stuff and you see, okay. My fear is this idea, what did I think was going to happen with the spider? Spiders are still creepy to a lot of people, um, but um, I take them outside on paper for the record. Um, <laughs> I save them. Um, like a Buddhist. But, uh, right. well, I don't know why I'm like that. What about spiders? Because if I, I don't know, there was, I did throw a phone book on a Jerusalem, some kind of bug that was huge because my boyfriend was not here. And I thought, um, <laughs> this, this thing's like, <laughs> woman alone on the prairie, the Western, you know, all these people have these hardships. And for me, it's like, Oh, a bug. Where's a phone book? Manhattan phone book is, I still have it. It's, it's forever scarred. Anyway, um, so this, this exposure therapy stuff is so important. And what Kraski has done, she's brought in, and, and I also bring in um, in the book, um, the um, latest research on learning and memory. So I look at that anyway, just through other stuff that I do and looked at it for the book. But um, um, what's his name? Joseph Ledoux um, talks about some of this too. He's a neuroscientist where, um, oh, I know, I was going to reference, sorry, I'm hopping around, um, a guy named um, Stefan Hoffman. And mm -hmm. he's done some important work where he said, okay, before um, we thought that, um, hang on, because I'm looking, I'm looking him up. Um, oh, I'm not finding it. Okay, sorry, because I have my PDF here. Maybe his name isn't Stefan Hoffman. I think it is. Sorry. Um, anyway, oh, I think it's spelled the German way with two M's. Okay, oh, here it is. Okay, this is really cool. Um, forgive me for reading this to you. He said, so it's um, Stefan G. Hoffman. Yes, it is. Explains it. Um, neuroscience research suggests that exposure is a more cognitively sophisticated process than researchers had previously understood. So before these insights from neuroscience, the researchers had assumed that exposure only involves these quote unquote primitive, automatic, and low-level cognitive processes. And it's separate from these our higher order cognitive processes, which are our 
oh, what was I doing? You know, it's that it's where you say stuff out in words. But Hoffman actually found there are six studies, controlled clinical studies that found that exposure exercises alone, like where if you're me and you're like, oh, people will, I can't speak up for myself. And you go out and you speak up to the cashier. So exposure exercises alone like that without talk therapy, without that, like, oh, what did I learn? Those exercises alone led to dramatic changes in thinking. So you didn't, you don't do the conscious processing when you do these things that this is an important part of the book. These nuances like this, say that you go do that, say that on Saturday, you're going to go to a mall and you're going to have some interaction with somebody that you plan, like we're going to be rude or something and see what happens, or you're going to just speak up to somebody. It's easier to sort of be, um, Huffman actually has this great thing. And I wouldn't do this at bookstores. He suggests bookstores and I don't want bookstore owners to hate me, but go to the grocery store, buy things, and then immediately go back and return them, which is just like weird. And someone will say like, why are you returning? these and you don't explain it so normally like if it were the old me i'd be like i'm really sorry and i like i forgot and i'm not allowed oh, to eat so this it's an example of doing something unapologetically yeah exactly so right. it's sort of rude but it's not like you're telling somebody fuck you or something really horrible where you could also get punched or shot or whatever um i don't know if they're guns in chile but you know people here you know if you're in texas you know someone might shoot you because they carry a gun i'm not anti-guns i'm pro second amendment before people like go like <laughs> <laughs> don't send me hate mail. I, I just, um, anyway, but so, um, this exposure, the exposure exercises alone that if you do that, you go do those exercises and then you sleep afterward. You don't talk about it. You don't think about it. That seems to, um, have the brain work for you. Do this processing behind the scenes where it, it makes this stronger. So that's my goal. I give you all these ways that basically here are all the things you can do to make your exposure exercises really work for you to the point where you really are sure, like my fears are so fucking dumb. I'm going to start approaching people or, um, another big part of the book. My favorite chapter is your feelings are not the boss of you. It's not what you feel. It's what you do where I talk about, look, okay. Oh, did you have a feeling? Does your feeling like, Oh, you don't want to write in the morning? Well, fuck your feelings. <laughs> and so I call it roboting. I have on my computer, I have a timer because writing is horrible. I write applied behavioral science. I read these studies. I have to translate them. There's all this information. It's really hard. Do I give you this information or that information? What makes sense? And then I have to be funny. And then like, what if I don't have a joke? And what if I can't get a joke? And I brainstorm for an hour and nothing's funny. This is awful. It feels bad. So I have a timer and I write to the timer because otherwise I don't want to write. So I just sit down, the timer's on and I go, okay, typity, typity, typity. And I could type, I am Amy Elkon. I have nothing to say 400 times, but that seems pointless. So I look stuff up and you, what happens is you start to get into it. As you put stuff down, you generally think like, oh, wait, that's an idea. Oh, what if I do this? Oh, what if I do that? You get to what's called flow, which is by a guy named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He has a book on that, where you just forget that you're working and you're in this wonderful state of like, oh, this is interesting, exciting. You're all into your work. So that's what happens, but you have to start and the timer is a start thing. So I do 52 minutes on with the timer and then I take a 17 minute break because this allows for um, default mode brain processing, which is background processing where your brain is doing work in the background. That's how like, especially if you take a walk and there's good metaphorical reasons for this. Um, and we didn't quite get into the metaphor stuff, but um, metaphor is basically, metaphor seems to be the language of the body, you know, like I'm going to grasp that rather than I'm going to know that. I always try to write like that, you know, that people, they'll, so someone will grasp what you're meaning rather than understand because understand is sort of ephemeral, but grasp that we, we get that in a 
physical way. Mm. And that's very important. So that's some of the stuff like walking, you're going, you're moving forward. So that's a good metaphor. And this sounds kind of like bullshit, but I went through all this embodied cognition research and some of it, you know, with all the research, there's stuff that, oh, that didn't replicate, you know, but I look for a body of research with the same finding. Um, and also for reasons why sometimes stuff that didn't replicate, the replication didn't follow faithfully enough. And so I look at that, there's a lot of like, ha, you suck kind of thing. But sometimes the people saying that also suck on some level. And so that's why the body of research thing, like with the mating research in F-Psych. So we see a pile of research that finds that men across cultures are very visual and prioritize female beauty which, you know, basically beauty is um, what we think is beautiful. These are signs of fertility, youth, clear skin, you don't have parasites, all, all these um, mm. uh, uh, hourglass figure. That women across cultures prioritize men with willingness and ability to provide. So this is, maybe there's one study that's like, oh, look at that, the p-value on there, which is a big thing people are fighting about in stats and social psychology, rightfully so. But um, that's okay because you have those other 300 studies that all show this, the same or si very similar finding. Yeah. So what you were so also saying there about the, the the body, you also like we we talked about this a little bit before, but how you almost create that that you when you were talking about should you be your authentic self and no you should you know try and uh, adapt new forms maybe based on someone else and try to put that into the world, but you also make uh, a point to say don't overthink it, uh, all the things you have to apply. If not, you're just going to be a nervous mess. And also, again, I was thinking about martial arts, how we learn techniques and, you know, what, what we often refer to it in that space is called muscle memory. And, you know, a lot of people who do, who are musicians or in other sports will know what I'm talking about, but it's that when you, you're never going to execute a technique well, if you have to think about it. It's only and it's only by doing it over and over and over and you adopt it and there's almost a disconnect now between your mind and your body where it just executes. And of course the mind is still involved but it's completely subconscious and I think that also applies when you're interacting with people and you want to interact with them in the right way and if you're too conscious about it at the beginning you're not going to execute the technique well. You're not going inter to interact well because you're just being too conscious about it. It has to flow in this very natural way and it has to be through practice and just doing it over and over. And you talk about how you need to practice interactions even with people a lot. And uh, one, one of the things I was really interested in asking you based on this whole book, because basically your book is about improving yourself, but mainly focused on how to interact with people in a very functional way especially if you have trouble with that which i think is so common now but my question is why do you think that this is not taught as something to kids like even in school why is there like sex ed is only very it's very biological it's very you know pointing to this is the body part this body part does this but sex ed why doesn't it also include or maybe it's outside of sex ed but why doesn't it include how should we interact with one another like i was thinking when I was reading your book, I wish I had had this book when I was in junior high. I wish somebody had given me so this book, I. you know? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm older now. I, I'm, you know, I'm getting close to 40. And it, while I find so much is true, but 
I've, I've gone through a lot of the process maybe in a different way from your book, but I think it would be, this book is maybe so useful, not even maybe for somebody in their twenties, but really young because uh, it's not actually natural that a boy knows how to talk to a girl. That's, we're not born, born with that programming. And so many, so much of that interaction are uh, cultural and social constructs, you know, opening a door for a woman, asking the, you have to ask them out. Where do you ask them to maybe coffee or dinner? Like that's not programmed in our DNA to do that. It's things we have to learn, but there's also a taboo as that the only people who engage as to teaching men how to engage with women are like pickup artists. So there's this ickiness oh, about it where, where, gross. where the, the only person who's trying to learn how to interact with the other sex are are trying to do that for the most nefarious reasons. It's only to use them and drop them kind of thing. But it's so upsetting. But, you know, kids kids struggle with this, right? Like, you know, being a teenage boy at some point, you know, most boys, we, we all struggle with that. And nobody is telling us what to do. And then, because I, I, I studied film when I was young, and that's what I studied in university, I honestly think films have the worst advice about how to interact with women it's always like the guy who was friends with his best female friend for like 20 years and finally he runs to the airport and they fall in love but that's not how real life works <laughs> I and know. i don't have 20 years so how do i interact with, like there's a woman there how do i go up how do i talk to her how do i ask her out nobody teaches you that. well no i nobody. i talk about this in the book and i have to say if you're listening and you go to a college and has like tech or polytech in the title. I love guys. I love nerdy guys. I can tell you the process of how to, all, how to do all of this. And I do this in the book telling men and women, look, there are sex differences. Here's what you do as a woman. Here's what you do as a man. There are sex differences. Just accept them. You know, and um, the thing is, so this book, this book was supposed to be a lot easier to write, but then I looked at the science, the science basically like you had dragged behind a truck by the science. It's like, Holy shit, I joke that the book um, tried to kill me for three, kept trying to kill me for three years. But so what this is, um, I do transdisciplinary applied science and it's applied and it's across disciplines. So if you're a professor, you have to do what I call narrow casting. You have one subject, like Sonia Lubomirsky, whose research is really good on happiness um, and she does like gratitude. Um, but she just studies that area. She's there and she has to publish in certain journals. You know, people, if they publish out of the journals for their field, they get sort of demerits in their careers. Young researchers, they're not doing transdisciplinary work. And, and some people, they're just, their area is so complex and rich, they just don't want to. But um, that's what I do with this applied science. I bring it all together. I synthesize it and I come up with solutions. And so they don't have this. And also social science is just bereft of evolutionary psychology. So what you have is basically denial of human nature being taught to people as here's how things are. And also just like the plumbing stuff, like, oh, look, vagina. Oh, cool. Oh, and yes, I know. Alistair, hi, I know they're called, you know, labia and it's vulva and all this other stuff. I say vagina because it's funnier. And then I see all <laughs> these kind of colleges on Twitter going, like, oh, no, they don't know it's vagina. They're calling like, you know, it's like, that's not your vagina. Vagina's inside. And <laughs> I know that, but it's not funny to say vulva. <laughs> so, um, and so, you know, you, you brought up so much. Um, I wanted to, t you know, the thing about choking, you brought that up. Um, I, I cover this in the book. This thing, you're absolutely right. When you think about what you're doing, you mm. choke. And this is why it's so important to do this training wheels thing that I did, which is that for, you know, when you're first trying to see, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to go go out and you know, be confident that you put on somebody else's persona, or if you're say that you're 
okay, I'm not confident yet, but I have to pitch this thing to this dude. Okay, you cannot remember, stand up straight and talk from your diaphragm and all this stuff that you're supposed to do. But what you can do is you can, I can be Kathy. I'm Kathy now. Um, uh, you know, and I can talk the way she talks to people and be her because you have a, there's just a sort of an idea. It's a package deal that comes as who is Kathy and you can act like that person. And then you can remember your pitch because that's the only thing you have to remember. And it's kind of a cool secret to have, like, I'm actually acting like somebody else. Nobody's going to know unless you talk like, I don't know, somebody who's so not you. Um, with an accent or something you don't have, then you seem like an asshole. But um, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty great way to get to where you need to go. And then after a while, you just shed that. Then you become Amy, you know, doing the same thing Kathy did, but without the like hi, without the fabulous voice. Although I wish I talked like that, sort of like a '40s movie star. That's not how Kathy talks actually at all. But that's I'm a bad actress, and that's my sort of like oh, that's how I perceive it. And so that's okay. It just needs to be, you can do somebody from a movie. George Clooney is a perfect example for guys because he's so Mr. Smooth, you know, without being gross. And those pickup artist guys, oh, you brought that up. Oh, they're, they're disgusting. They're Mm. disgusting and awful. And um, women see through that. We all have heard of negging now, guys. We all know like, oh, you're making fun. Oh, you're negging us. Nobody wants that guy. They want the genuine guy. We like courage. Sometimes even, I think I probably say this in the book somewhere, I think I did where, you know, if you're uncomfortable and you're screwing up, say like, oh my God, I'm, I'm a little nervous talking to you or something like that because someone who can admit that is somebody who's strong. It's like, um, when I talk, um, I've got done these book talks where I go to a um, book festival and I said this to this huge room of people in, um, Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas at their literary festival. I said, I'm socially awkward. I've always been socially awkward. I kind of yelled it. You know, and that's true. I'm the person at a cocktail party. I have no idea how to leave a conversation. I look it up on the internet, but still it's sort of like, you know, into how to get into conversation. So I just sort of like stumble in like cattle like wandering through a gate. And I do that and I sort of laugh at it now because that's what self-acceptance is. Oh, we have to talk about it. Authenticity you brought that up too because you brought mm-hmm. up so much. Um, self-acceptance, there's this research by this woman, Kristen Neff, and I love how she put this at basically self-acceptance when you are um, when you screw up at something to see that, um, screw ups are what connect us to other human beings. We're all screw ups. We all make mistakes, like have some kind of whatever stuck to our shirt or something or slobber or something, or do some spill something to spill the glass of wine. I'm the one, like I get excited. I knock the glass of wine over. It's like, Oh, there she comes. They say when I come in the restaurant, you know, that kind of stuff, but that's other people have their own screw ups. So just to see that as connecting is really is really a good thing because then you can accept it and then you can see yourself. Oh, I'm a flawed person, but so I have ADD and I ramble and everything and I forget things and my keys are in the freezer, I'm sure right now. But, um, my ADD is also cool. It, it allows me to joke and come up with these. I sort of have a cartoon thing that goes in my mind. I see things as cartoons, um, you know, just what's happening in life and it's very amusing and make weird connections. So I see ADHD as a feature that comes with some costs you know, and, and that self-acceptance of seeing like, oh, a little shitty there. I'm pretty good over there. Okay. It's all me. It's all Amy Alcon. You know, the, I had a, I had some, how should I say, arguments in my head while I was reading the parts about authenticity. Now, essentially a lot of what you said, I do agree with in the sense that 
you do have to change a lot of aspects about yourself if you're just a mess. If you're if you're just a really rude person and you can tell like everybody's rejecting you when you talk to about them, you got to change. You got to start changing that. If you don't know how to approach people, if you're a nervous wreck, you got to change that. If you're you know you're not dressing well and you're out of shape, you got to change that. There's things definitely you can change about yourself. However, I don't think it's necessarily the best thing to not be your authentic self to a certain degree and. I've heard that from people like you got to be a certain way to, you know, whatever it is, you know, to get people to like you to like, you know, to get girls to like you, whatever it was. But I found, you know, there there is something to be yourself in the sense that when I'm when, when I, I found that I'm at a table with a lot of people that instead of trying to get everyone to like me there, that if I'm my authentic self, some people might not like me. And some people might, but those people who do like me, I can be my real self with. And those are more valuable people than just trying to get everyone to like me. So I find that there's like, it has to be kind of a combination that you can't alter yourself that much. And even you won't maybe really be happy if you do. If you're trying to be a totally different person, you're going to be around people who are not liking you for you to a certain degree. Do you, well. I just want to stop you because mm -hmm. I want to, I'm going to forget and you're going to say something yeah, else yeah. interesting. I'm going to hit this. Steam um, roll over everything I said, you please. Make, but you make a choice. No, no, I just, I, I wanted to, this is important that you said this. So you make a choice that I'm just going to be me. You know, this is a choice that I make in some ways too. So there are ways that people dress, like appropriate ways to dress. I wear evening wear as day wear every day. If I'm going to the drugstore, I wear an evening gown skirt. And by the way, you can get them like for $5 on eBay. Sometimes the shipping's more than the skirt and they come, all my clothes come crumpled into priority mail bags and thrown over my fence. But, evening um, dresses, so, you can get it from that for that much? Yeah. Wow. I, I wear just the skirts because uh, I won't go into it, but um, I wear just the skirt part and then I wear a leather jacket or something and a scarf, big scarf that's fluffy. Um, so I make that choice that I am not going to dress the way that is appropriate. And mm -hmm. you make that choice. Look, I want people that they can like me for me. It's too exhausting. I can't act like other people. I'm weird and annoying. And I like ter I have terrible taste in music. Um, I just terrible compared to other people like people. I'm the uncoolest person. But I just tell people the stuff about me. And if they don't like it, and it's too, they can't stand a person who has uncool taste in music, well, fuck them. But mostly my friends are really interesting, smart people, and they don't care about your taste in music. They just want you to not be boring. You know, and so the thing I say about in, in, in authenticity, so I say be inauthentic, screw the real you, be the ideal you. This doesn't mean be some like fake, creepy person. But what I'm saying, the way you chose, it's that choose the person you are. So if I didn't choose the person I am, I would be this timid person. And it's like, oh, well, okay, you can change the bad parts of you. Well, of course we want to change the bad parts of you. You know, this idea of be authentic this is like, okay, I think the example I give in the book is, um, what if you're like, a the real you is like a baby seal clubber, you know, or you, you know, rob liquor stores or whatever, you know, it, authenticity in the psych literature means having your outer self match your inner self. But I say like, look, let's, let's choose who we are. And that's like, and the way you do that is by choosing values. So for example, one of my big values, you just choose a, you choose um, you know, not a huge amount, but one of mine, my, the, the top one is courage. And so, 
you know, this is really important because if you choose your values, mine are, um, here, I'll read them to courage, wisdom, kindness, making the world a better place. That's one whole thing. Freedom, liberty, free speech. That's another value. Learning growth, fairness, integrity, personal responsibility, honesty, but also judicious honesty. So you don't just tell people like, oh, you look, you know, really shitty in that dress. Perseverance, gratitude, humor, and seizing life, which is, I call the car crash principle where people um, basically people say like, Oh, I wasn't living till I had that car crash and was disfigured and life was horrible for a year. And it's like, well, why don't we just like do that without the twisted metal and rehab? And, um, so those are my values. So what that means, the fact that I've chosen them, wrote them down. Um, it means that when I'm in a situation, I know how to behave because I might not be courageous, but my value is courage. So I'm going to act courageous. So that's the thing. It's like, how am I going to act? Um, these are the principles you care the most for. And so they become the guiding standards of your behavior instead of just whatever you came in with, like, oh, because we're, we're, our personality is formed. It's, it's genetic. Um, it's, it's, it's very much genetic. And then also, um, it's, it's shaped by our environment because genes react with an environment. And this is, if you want to know, you know, look at that stuff, twins research and Nancy Siegel. I mean, she's just great on this. Um, and you see the way twins who are separated at birth and raised apart, which is a horrible thing. Um, they get switched to the hospital or something, um, that, um, those kids end up being those identical twins, not the fraternal twins. They end up being so similar despite not knowing each other. And I've met one of these twins. So there's a guy raised in Nazi Germany, um, as a sort of Nazi kid and a guy raised Jewish and some, somewhere is this tropical. Is a real story? Is that a real yeah, situation? Yeah. He says it's Oscar and that I forget sounds, the other guy's name. Yeah. That I know. sounds and then amazingly Nancy, interesting. She just studied the Bogota twins. These two sets of identical twins separated at birth, raised apart, one raised by this poor, one set raised by this poor family. So they were separated. And so just to explain twins, twins are identical. Twins are monozygotic. So zygote egg, they're from one egg. You know, and so their genes are, Nancy says, they're I, like uh, supposedly 100% the same, but they're not really because stuff happens in the womb. Like, you know, like this one, um, you know, doesn't get as much whatever, you know, mom candy or whatever. I I'm so scientific, um, you know, and so there and then stuff happens after birth that maybe one experiences something the other doesn't. Um, there are other reasons. So they're, they're um, Sorry, that's not quite the same thing as in the womb. Um, but then fraternal twins are dizygotic, which means two zygotes, you know, and they are no more alike than siblings. So what you see with all these separated birth twi twins, you know, because Nancy and other researchers have found them over the years, is that these they, they meet at maybe 25 or 28 or 46, and they are alike in so many ways. They wear the same shirts. These two guys were, they both had the blue shirts with the epaulets, so they both did the same glasses, um, they like the same things. They laugh the same way. Um, and it shows you that how much of our personality is genetic, but also, you know, there's research now, I think it's Fraley or Hudson or somebody that increasingly is showing that we can change our personality to some extent, like, um, conscientiousness is one of the dimensions they call the ocean or hexaco. Those are the initials. And so conscientiousness is one of those like being responsible and caring about other people and doing what you say you will that you can maybe become more conscientious by acting conscientious over time, make your bed every day and, um, you know, do call your friends when you say you are and don't be late to things. And, and then that over time seems to ingrain more conscientiousness into you. Yeah. You know, I, I, again, like opposite of what I said before, I do think that we do have to learn and change also to interact with the rest of the world. The, there's a very big limit 
to how much you can just be your authentic self, which is such a big thing these days, especially on the more liberal side of that has gone really extreme with just, you know, uh, nurture to to the absolute, you know, highest point where it's just be yourself, be yourself, accept yourself however you are. And I think that's not healthy advice. We can there's that completely rejects the idea of self-improvement and we can and life is about constant improvement in everything every little talent you do if it's you're a musician or or you do sports or you're you're investigating and you research um your interactions with people everything can be constant improvement and one of the things when i i was young that really changed my life is something it was a self-realization nobody had told me but you know how when you're young, everybody asks you, well, me, you know, this continues throughout life, but people ask you, what kind of person are you looking for? Right. This is, your girlfriends might ask you in your case, what kind of guy are you looking for? Right. And then they ask you to describe the guy you're looking for. And I think that's the basic point of view most people have. But my realization was instead of asking myself what kind of person I want, why don't I ask myself what kind of person I deserve? And then I started thinking, that's like, interesting. Wow. And then I asked myself, Okay, I want a good-looking girl. Okay, Lalo, but do you deserve one? Do you take That's... care of your looks? And then I asked, wow, I want an intelligent person. It wouldn't be like, I want a gorgeous, intelligent, funny, nice girl. Okay, am I intelligent? Am I good-looking? Am I nice to people? And and after I realized that, I decided I took a long time off from just interaction with people and worrying about people and just concentrating myself. I'm going to, I thought I'm going to read, I'm going to work out a lot. And I put no focus on the external world. And before I was even ready to start even thinking about the external world, the world just came to me. People were coming towards me because, you know, I, I, I was working out, therefore I looked healthier and I felt better. I slept more, which improved my attitude. I read more and, you know, and, and, I read things I loved instead of just doing it because I was forced to in school. And as I improved myself, you became a person. I became a person that I think other people wanted to approach versus just me also wanting to get towards them. And I and I felt there was a lot of that in your book about self-improvement, not just how to act towards others. And that, I mean, opposite, I, I wanted to criticize the part about authenticity, but I also felt that it kind of reflected that realization I had is that it's about self-improvement. We're concentrating on yourself. How do I look at myself? How do I carry myself? You know, how do I think about myself? And, you know, there's a lot of different ways, but a lot of the ways you describe in your book have so much value, I think. I love this description where you said, be a person who deserves those people. I want to just point out, there are these sex differences I brought up in preferences. So men care more about looks and women prioritize um, a man who's a provider, even if they're wealthy themselves and do really well. Women who actually, women who are wealthy and do well want men who are wealthier and do better. Or there's a thing too, you can be somebody who has status um, say that, um, your wife's a movie star making, you know, $30 million a movie and you're also an actor, but you make like, you know, a million dollars. So then you kind of suck on the level of, um, our evolved preferences. But what if you say, take on a cause like doctors without borders and you're the voice of that and everything you're doing something meaningful. So you can increase your status that way. So it's very important. Women go for high status men, the hottest, best women, you know, and men want women who are intelligent now too. So it's not like, you know, just, Oh, she's hot arm candy. Yay. 
Um, but you know, for, for a guy looks are not as important if he is highly successful master of the universe. So that's, that's an important thing. And I just want to take one little trip back to authenticity and, and one thing it, what, what matters, what seems to matter is being seen as authentic in other people's eyes. So, and the reason is it's, they need to know that they can count on you, that you're not some kind of shifting self, but actually when I combine all this research, this is why it's so important to combine research like this. And this is why I love what I do, you know, this thing of transdisciplinary science. So I looked at Michael Kazanaga, um, this neuroscientist, um, his research on split brain patients. Um, basically these are epileptics who had their corpus callosum cut down the middle. This is the, this is, there's like the phone wires between the sides of the brain. And so what he ended up showing, it's a little bit complicated, but he ended up showing that there's no unitary self. We are a bunch of shifting selves and we have these cognitive biases, these sort of thinking errors that basically we err on the side of what's best for us in a situation. So what's safest, that's error management theory. So we err on the side, for example, of thinking that a squiggly thing in the bushes is a snake or in the leaves is a snake because it's more costly to miss the snake that's actually there than to go like, oh, eek, and there isn't a snake there and your friends laugh at you. So you're humiliated, but you're not, there isn't actually no such thing as dying of embarrassment. So dying of snake bite, that's more serious. So that's an example of how we are not these rational, consistent, reliable, predictable people. We are predictable in terms of personality is stable, is pretty stable. You react the same way to certain things in different environments. Um, you know, you, you, based on how much of scooping of conscientiousness or whatever you got, these other, their ocean, the openness to experience, any conscientiousness, I'm not going to go through them, but, um, but still you can change through deciding this, what are my values? How, what am I going to prioritize? And then you have to pre-plan because in the moment, the hot, it's called the hot, hot cognition. You know, when something's happening, someone's saying rude thing to you, you know, you're, you're tempted to respond, you know, fight or flight kicks in and you want to call them an asshole or club them or whatever, but you have to pre-plan how you're going to behave in these hot moments. So you can choose your behavior in a way you can't, if you're just all sort of like your emotions ran away, like the wagon train running away with a stampeding horse. So I wanted to ask you how people have reacted to this book, especially when it comes to people who are now very liberal in the United States, which to me is, it seems like a, a political or societal group that I don't recognize compared to when I was young, um, that used to be so pro-science and your book is so pro-science so in it, it well, based in science i haven't had it be you know left or right my editor's very liberal and um he was fine with all of it and the thing is um i write like a prosecutor i write like a lawyer i think about what people's objections will be and sometimes i choose to use stuff that's on pc um and i just i know that i'll get complaints about something but um I really um, work very hard at supporting everything and explaining, you know, I look at, okay, people are going to have a problem with this. I'm going to explain why this is this way in a way where they can accept it because just challenging people, um, it's just and saying like, ha here's this thing that's going to piss you off. 
um, that's not very mature and I'm 54 now. And so I'm, you know, I grew up a little bit from when I was in my twenties and wanted to, you know, sort of stick it to people, um, or just show, Oh, I'm so smart. Look at these big words. I know now I just want to use a small, the, the words that are the most communicative words. If I can write at a fifth grade level or something about complex science, that's really cool. You know, I remember there's something in a chapter, it's something where, you know, you'd think that there would be a better answer for this. Like, I wish there were, I, I wish that too, but no, there's actually not. You know, I explained that that's one of the things, um, I think I'm just at a place where this is the best thing I've ever written and where I explain things in a way where I explain the nuances to the problems with things and saying, look, we want it to be this way. So that's the thing that I do. And it really, really hasn't been, I'm not a, polarizing figure, you know, um, I don't get attention that way. Um, I mean, I sometimes, um, but, um, not, not really intentionally, not in a big way, um, where I'm just about, um, here's science. Isn't this cool? Look how it dovetails with this other science and what this tells us about how we can live less counterproductively, have what we want. Um, I just would like to, I wish that I, I went through such a struggle for so many decades of my life to deal with being a loser and these fears and bad feelings about myself that I had. Um, and then I would just like to help other people get through this faster, you know, look, do this shit, do this, act like this a lot, go out and act like this for a while. And there's a process to use this process and things will be better. And I'm not going to lie to you and say, like, I didn't call my book at a certain point. We had to change the title. I'm not really supposed to talk about that, but um, my editor loved this. Um, and, and actually everybody did. They loved the, the title of the last chapter, which is unfuckwithable, but I wouldn't call the book that because I thought that I can't tell you, I'm not going to make you unfuckwithable. I can't even make me unfuckwithable. I'm very fuckwithable. We all are, you know, but what I can make you is less fuckwithable and help you get more of what you want. You know, and, and part of this too is this thing, um, from Nassim Taleb that I love that, um, and a lot of people don't like him. I like him cause he put, um, he has a book blurb and he's, his, one of his, he used book blurbs from ordinary people. I had to get like, you know, cause I don't have a PhD on purpose so I can be transdisciplinary, but I had to get really, you know, famous big researchers to say like, she is really good on science. He got people to say like, look, he's an asshole, but he's an asshole who knows what he's talking <laughs> about. I love that. Um, and so he talks about what he calls anti-fragile and this is his name for things that are improved by stressors. And I realized that. And so it's something I think about a lot and I explain in the book and that I, um, say like, for example, I, I went and spoke at the Rotary Club in San Francisco and I had a carry on, which I never do because I travel like Liz Taylor. But if anybody who still knows who that is, but with uglier luggage, I have like a sarcophagus. Usually I like my boyfriend. It's always so hopeful. He's like, do you have, um, I'm going to check a bag. Like, uh, hi, did you think you were with somebody else other than me? I, you know, anyway, so, but this time I took a carry on cause it was just for a day. And so and it was heavy. So I saw there are four flights of stairs and I ran up those four flights of stairs, carrying up my carry on instead of taking the escalator right next to it. Cause I realized we have this life of ease. We're all pussies in our modern society, you know, and we need more physical labor. And so that was my little effort to be anti-fragile, to improve myself with stressors, to give my muscles some work. And our avoidance of stress, See, I think this is a big part of the problem of where people are all like, oh, you can't say that I'm triggered and everything that um, we we just, life is so easy. And this is not my idea. Somebody had it, I think it was City Journal that I, I saw this, but it's it's an idea that dovetails with mine that 
people are, they're finding new problems that aren't problems. Like, oh, you said a hurty thing to me, hurt feels, hurt feels, you know, that because we don't have any kind of like physical problems that we're curing all these diseases, that um, life is easy, that now um, my grandpa, he, he just was so lost when they took away his car keys, you know, which they took away a little late. Quite frankly, you know, he was like 90 or something and crushed and someone luckily didn't kill them. Um, but, you know, so it took away his mobility. Well, now get a smartphone, the ones that are like, you know, like dinner plates that are huge. So you could see even if you're blind and you call up Uber and they drive you around. So old people now, it's so amazing. All the technology that removes the problems and the stumbling blocks from life, you know, so we have all that. And so now we're just sitting on our asses, you know, trying to figure out like what someone said that's offensive so we can get them fired. Yeah. You know, count me out. Yeah. I also think there a lot of that has to do with the invention of social media. Partly maybe is that people's lives have become more comfortable and more automated, uh, you know, people uh, rising in social classes. But I think because of social media, before it used to be a very rare thing where somebody would become famous for some reason. Now with social media, people can become famous overnight without any help from a producer or 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 showing up on TV. You can just become famous just opening an account on some platform, Instagram, Twitter. But most people are talentless and not very intelligent. Right. So a very what people have discovered, which is true, is that you can become famous simply by complaining about something. I got hurt. Yeah. Some, you know, somebody offended me. Somebody said something bad to me about me or something like that. And that's a very dangerous thing. It's, it's a, it's, it's like a victimhood industry where you can, you can not just become famous, but you can monetize these things. I, yeah. I don't think that leads that's to how, a very good world. No, that's how I describe it. And actually I'm kind of a little pissed off because I had to work really hard to get chosen. So you used to have to get chosen. And that's why I changed my column. First of all, I hate the name of the advice goddess. I chose it in a moment because my business card said freelance goddess and I syndicated my column to second paper and they said, what's it called? And I'm like, oh, shit, business card. Oh, freelance goddess. Oh, I don't know. The advice goddess. I'm not goddessy at all. But um, I had to change my column name to the science advice goddess to differentiate myself after people started, you just had an advice column because you decided to put it on your blog. You know, there's no editor who said, oh, this is valuable thinking, you know, and that's the thing. So it's good and it's bad because, you know, anybody can have a platform. It's good. Anybody can have a platform and it's bad because yes. you get these things happening and you see it horrible things. And so if any of you are being mobbed by somebody on Twitter, you come like, you know, tweet it to me. And if I'm not like, I don't know, in a coma or something somewhere or on, on a plane or whatever the time I will bring around. There are a few women like-minded women who will, um, they're mostly women. They're probably, there's one guy too, um, who will, you know, sort of like stop the mob. We'll, we'll speak out to the mob because this is a horrible, powerful thing, especially when people with big profiles do it. Um, you know, like if you have a lot of followers and you set your followers on somebody, this is some like ordinary person. They're not used to this. They don't have a lot of followers. They don't want to deal with it. It's just not right. I think it's very unethical. And I try to be careful not to debt myself um, you know, to, I think twice, I, I'll see something I want to sort of say something about, but I realize, oh, I'll, I'll bring down, you know, the sort of the Valkyries on them. And th that's not okay. I'm kind of at the point where I think that mob, like, cause the main problem there is the mob, even if it's like a verified person who's real and they sick a mob on them. Essentially the problem is the mob that, that huge amounts of people that come out of nowhere who get really nasty. And I'm yeah. kind of at the point now and I didn't used to think this way, but I'm kind of at the point where I am against anonymity online. 
I don't think she, people should be able to have on major platforms like Twitter or Facebook or YouTube. I don't think they should be able to have anonymous accounts. And I think this, I see the benefits. Everybody's you know going to yell at me and say a million benefits. I'm aware of the benefits. I think that if you actually have to put your name on what you say, I think that will bring down the amount of viciousness, not entirely, but way less, maybe like 99% of what we're seeing. And there's just going to be that 1% left of people who are willing to be nasty under their real name. And I think like there's other subjects like the bots that people buy to gain followers that would be solved. The whole Russia making all these bots to control elections that would be solved. I just yeah, think well, it's Twitter it's just they got rid of a whole bunch of those. I lost like 200 followers. I'm like, holy shit, where'd they go? At least it was only 200 side. They're yeah. mostly real, but you can follow me, Amy Elkon, A-L-K-O-N on Twitter. Um, so, um, but the thing is, I wrote about this. I read a science-based, two actually science-based manners books. The last one was Good Manners for Nice People Sometimes Say Fuck because I must have profanity in every title. And what I talk about, I actually, as libertarian, and I, I just, I'm, I realize there are reasons that people sometimes wish to cloak their identity. But what I say is we, we got this, like we got this info nuke, the internet, you know, we didn't get directions like with the phone, you know, they, they had a booklet and Alexander Graham Bell put out a booklet. Oh, by the way, he wanted the thing you say on the phone when you get on, he wanted it to be ahoy. Isn't that dumb? I love that. I sometimes answer the phone ahoy. that way. It's my editor calling ahoy. She's ahoy. like, asshole. We have the least respectful work environment. She's like, like oh, let's get yeah, right. Anyway. Um, so, um, what I say is that we need to have that manners for the internet. So I came up with, look, here's how, here's some guidelines. Um, it's the behave as you are in real life rule that you might need to be anonymous because you're a nursery school principal or whatever, or do they have principals, whatever, a kindergarten principal, elementary school principal, you know, and you don't want people to find out that you're, you know, on porn tube doing whatever, um, or saying whatever on Twitter, but you should behave as as you are in real life. That if you wouldn't say like "fuck you, you dumb bitch" at the grocery store, don't say it on Twitter. But see, <laughs> but you're you're saying people sh you, like I understand the point of saying people should act this way, and here's a rule. But, but so like most people are just not going to do it. So to me, I think that the way society is constructed is that there are consequences to what you do, what you say, how you act towards people in real life. In a normal setting where I have, I'm looking at somebody and they can look at me back and I say something to them, there are social consequences because they can see my face. And it's not bad that there are consequences to what you say and what you do. But with anonymity online, the problem is consequences go out the window and I just don't see how anybody's gonna behave without consequences. Well, more people should read my manners book because people right. like me, what I did was um, I had people behaving really badly to me, whether it's telemarketers or some horrible asshole um, who worked for the government was using government time to post. Um, I, I had these people going after my comment section, ruining the comments, you know, posting hundreds and hundreds of pieces of spam in a row saying, are you tranny? You look like a man. Yeah. You know what? Um, maybe that's, um, you don't want to say that about transsexuals, like as a negative thing, number one. And number two, um, wait, who are you? And so they're all anonymous. So I tracked down this one guy who worked for the NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration of the government. And he was supposed to be mining satellites at three in the morning that they didn't fall out of the sky. But instead, he was like, are you a tranny? You look like a man on my website. Um, and so I actually tracked him down because people don't do that. I'm a little crazy compared to most people, a little obsessive, tracked him down and said, hi, it's Amy Alcon. Do you think I look like a man? 
<laughs> at his job. What, what did he say? Yeah. Was he, was he he's out? like, you can't call me or it's the government, you know? And so doing that, and I also did the same with telemarketers. I figured out who they were. I called them at home and yelled at them and I invoiced them for my time and use of my phone line. I had prices posted online. This is called costly punishment. It's a term from economics. Um, it's a people who puni- punish other people, rude people, people who d- do injustice at cost to themselves and with no benefit. Although with the telemarketers, I did um, get some money actually, um, because you know you don't get to use a phone line I pay for to to like break into my home and interrupt my dinner or sex oh, or the whatever. Telemarketing thing like those drives me crazy. Those, oh yeah, man. I so I charged people and I actually got money. Um, and now I have a thing that blocks calls and then sometimes I'll get a call from someone. They won't say hello fast. And I'll think like, ha ha, there's a big red button. It's very satisfying. I hit it. And then I have to go find, they're like, your phone won't answer for me. Then I have to go find their number and unblock it, which is a drag. But anyway, so this is the sort of thing I don't agree. You know, a business will change. Facebook has decided most people on there are sort of in their real names. Some people aren't, but a lot of people are, and they use that to identify on other things like Instagram or whatever, you know, so there is that. And you can basically, what I say in Good Manners for Nice People who sometimes say fuck is that you're only anonymous on the in- anonymous on the internet because no one's tried very hard to find out who you are. Basically what these people that it's sort of the group of like the anti-mob group on Twitter, um, what what we do is we stand up against the mob. So there's there's a there's a counterpoint saying, look, this isn't right. Don't do this. This is wrong, you know. And I spoke about this. Some a researcher asked me the other day, well, do you think this is right that somebody has um, not exactly doxed somebody because doxing, D-O-X-X-I-N-G, means revealing their personally, personal private information like their home address, that's, you know, um, their social security number, revealing those things online. But even printing somebody's email address or phone number, if these are public, publicly available uh, and putting it on Twitter with the way people are in social media, this basically it's saying like, here, we're going to bring down the mob on you if somebody has a lot of followers. And I just don't think that's right. I think we need to say to people who do that, hey, no, that's not okay. Don't do that. That's not fair. You have a million followers. And there's such huge power to that, that we need to recognize that and not, not abuse it. Yes, I agree. Yes. Especially those people with huge followings of that sort. And some of them, they just come down on some small account for what they said. And also then, honestly, also the, I see news agencies doing this where they they, they'll post a tweet from some person who has no power, obviously. They're yeah. not verified. They have 100 followers. But some news agency will put their tweet in an article or talk about it. Like, why are you doing that? How desperate yeah. are you to for, See, for news that you do that to somebody? You're right. They need to be very careful because here's the thing. So I have written publicly... I mean, actually, almost my whole life, I wrote my first newspaper column that won an award at 15. I would have changed my byline if I hadn't won something. Um, I want to be like Alexander or Q or something really exciting. But, um, you know, it's they need to I have spent all this time learning, being edited, learning how to edit myself, learning how to speak in a balanced way in public. And other people haven't. And they don't really understand the consequences of, oh, I'll throw off this comment where if they'd said at a cocktail party, someone think like you're kind of a jerk, but instead the whole world thinks that and mobs them. And and the thing that's important, I want to tell people as somebody I had, I'm not even going to say who these people are. 
I had people come after me recently and um, a whole group of them. It was horrible. Um, but I'm, I'm strong and I wrote a book on confidence and I can deal with it. Somebody's going to commit suicide when they get mobbed and, and we really need to be mindful that someone person, some person who's emotionally fragile. When you see somebody being mobbed, let me just tell you how helpful it is emotionally for you to say, hey, you know, I see what you're going through. And I'm so sorry, this has to be hard. Call me if you want, if you know them. You know, this is so nice. So um, this woman, Kat Rosenfeld, who writes, um, Rosenfield Rosenfeld, who writes YA novels, she didn't agree with me. Like the thing that they were mobbing me for, she was on the other side in terms of the issue. But she said, I don't agree with you, but I'm so sorry. I can't remember exact words. So sorry this is happening to you and being done to you. And that just meant the world to me. So that's the thing, you know, you brought up some of this. We don't have to agree with everybody. You know, I like these people who disagree, you know, but disagree in a civil way and be okay with someone. You don't have to like throw them out, light them on fire because I mean that in a figurative way, um, of course, um, because they have this point of view you don't like. So abortion is an example. Okay. You think abortion is murder. This person's sort of uncomfortable with it, but they're pro-choice. You don't have to hate them. You can say, I don't agree with you on that. Oh, you're a vegan and I eat steak. Okay. You know, I mean, this thing of like, why do we have to throw people out? Because they don't think the way we do. This is so childish. To be an adult is to say, I'm an atheist. I have this friend, lawyer, Tom, who's a Christian. He jokes that he can prove there's a God because um, the Bible's a very old book and he can get it admitted into evidence in court. I'm like, Tom, that doesn't prove <laughs> <laughs> but, but we laugh and he's my friend and I can say Merry Christmas to you without feeling threatened because I'm an adult atheist and that's nice. Happy Easter. I like Christmas trees. They're pretty. I wish people would leave up the lights all year round. You know, they're really nice. Um, and, and it's being like that, being adult about differences. And that's what, kind of what we lost. Definitely. And uh, Amy's book is Unfuckology, A Field Guide to Living with Guts and Confidence. There's a lot of science in it. You, you know, you get a lot of, out of it as far as, you know, raw information about science. And it's, it's entertaining the way she writes. It's funny. It's approachable. It's not hard to read. And it, it, there's a lot of great suggestions about how to apply it to everyday life. It's a great book. Thank you. And thank you so much for being on, Amy. This was a lot of fun. This is Great. I could yeah. talk to you for three hours. <laughs> <I'm sure. before. laughs> Thanks a million. 